Yeah, amen. Beauty for ashes, God's incredible work in caring for those who are hurting, for those who have need, and Sanctity of Life is a very special uh, Sunday in the life of our church as we're able to think about how God has done amazing things, and it's very overwhelming just to, to think about how God has, has allowed uh, our church to care for, for children and for their families. Lamentations is written from the perspective of exiles, of those who no longer have a home. And as we care for the fatherless, and as we care for those who are caring for the fatherless, we as a church are proclaiming our status as exiles. We are proclaiming that this world is not our ultimate home, that we believe that by God's grace, there's something greater in store for us. We are willing to sacrifice temporal things in order to provide for those who, are, who, have, who have souls that will last forever. It's a very special Sunday, and I want to invite you to turn to Lamentations chapter 4. And as you do, you know, some of you may be newer to, to Bethany. This may be your first uh, Sanctity of Life Sunday with us and hope it's an enjoyable day for you as you see God's goodness and, and contemplate that. But also for those of you who are newer, I just want to invite you again, if, if you're considering making Bethany your church home or just want to find out more about Bethany, to come to our Discovering Bethany class next Sunday and the following Sunday. I believe it's, it's in the, the gym. Um, I should probably, I'm teaching it, so I should probably double-check on that, but I think it's during Sunday school hour there. And then also, um, if you're newer to the church and you're trying to find out ways to get involved, I encourage you to come to a Sunday evening service next week also. And then also, uh, if, if you're a, a woman newer to the church, our Be Real ministry, our women's ministry meets this Tuesday night. So there are a lot of ways to, to get involved and encourage all of you to, to be involved in those things. Also, uh, since it is Sanctity of Life Sunday, as you, as you came in, you, you've received a couple of things. There's also some more information on the tables. would encourage you to, to uh, look at that. And that you know, there's this uh, upcoming Refuge in the Midst of Shame uh, conference for those of you who have been involved in orphan care and foster care, a free seminar in February. And then also, if just everyone, I would encourage you to kind of look through this and find out ways that you can be involved in caring for uh, the fatherless and other families who are caring for the fatherless. We are uh, doing a, a three-week overview of Lamentations as we begin the new year. And as we're beginning Lamentations 4, let me just kind of remind you where we've been. Uh, the first week we looked at Lamentations 1 and 2 and really spent our time focusing on Lamentations 1. And there's a lot of similar themes in these, these first two chapters. And we talked about how the, the horror of sin and its consequences should drive us to repentance, to, to crying out to God. As we see the horrible things that happen as a result of sin, it should drive us closer to God. And then last week, we looked at chapter 3, and we looked at the center of chapter 3, which is the center of the book of Lamentations, and we, we saw that in lament, we confess some truths about God that we would not be able to grasp apart from lament. And so we, we talked about the beauty of, of that. And we especially kind of wrestled with this idea that we do not look at God's acts of justice in order to understand what he delights in, 
we look at what God delights in in order to understand things like his, his acts of judgment. And there was one quote especially last week that many of us kind of struggled with. In fact, I had kind of debated about whether or not to include the whole quote by Stephen Charnock, but uh, Stephen Charnock was writing in the 1600s, and this is the line that, that many of you talked to me about this, this past week. So again, he wrote this in the 1600s, Puritan Stephen Charnock, and he wrote this. He said, God only hates the sin, not the sinner. And many of you said, well, well hold on. Uh, first of all, that is kind of confusing because oftentimes in our culture today, when people say God only hates the sin, not the sinner, what they're saying is that God isn't going to, to judge the sinner. There's not going to be acts of, of wrath against the, the sinner and punishment. And, and certainly we, we don't agree with that, right? We, we talked about how we didn't agree with that. But then also, some of you said, well, Daniel, uh, you said that God loves the sinner, that, that he hates the sin, not the sinner. But what about passages like Psalm 11.5? Psalm 11.5 says, the Lord's soul hates wicked and the one who loves violence. And so if you peer into the heart of God, you're going to, to find uh, hatred for the wicked. So how, how does that mesh with, with what you've said? Which is it? When we peer into the heart of God, do we find a heart that, that loves the sinner, or do we find a heart that, that hates the wicked? And the answer is, of course, we find both, which is very hard for us to grasp. It's hard for us to understand because most of us can only feel kind of one dominant emotion at a time, right? If you were to ask your wife, are you, you know, what's going on? How are you feeling about me? And she says, well, look, I I love you, but I'm kind of frustrated with you right now. Um, I don't want to speak for your wife, but, but probably there's one emotion that's more dominant than the other, and it's not the love emotion, right? It, 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 there's there's a, the frustration. But God isn't like that. God always fully loves that which is good, and he always completely fully hates that which is wicked. And so God, as he looks at a human being made in his image, can, can rejoice and delight and, and love the good, while at the same time being unwavering in his hatred of the wicked. So in fact, you look at Psalm 11.5, notice how it connects God's hatred with the, the act of wickedness. God's soul hates the wicked. God's soul hates the one who loves violence. God hates wickedness. So if you said, Daniel, does God hate sinners? I would say yes. If you say, does God love sinners? I would also say yes. And there's a danger that we don't emphasize his love, and that was my point last week. We, as we look in the heart of God, we don't find a, a heart that delights in inflicting pain, but a, a heart that delights in showing mercy but is unwavering in its commitment to righteousness and holiness and mercy. That's why the affliction of pain, Scripture calls his strange work. Now you say, okay, how does that relate to today? All that kind of builds into a tension that helps us see a beautiful truth, that God values life, that life is precious to God. And on this Sanctity of Life Sunday, we're going to look at some truths about life as we lament, that I hope will motivate us to care for the vulnerable, particularly children. And so what we're going to do is, is we're going to, to look at 
chapters 4 and 5, and we're going to look at the beginning of chapter 4 and the end of chapter 5 this morning and kind of talk about what's going on in there, about what lament teaches us about the sanctity of life. And so if you're able to, if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together, beginning in verse 1 of Lamentations 4. How the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold. How they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breast. They nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives it to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who are brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. Now if you turn with me to the end of Lamentations, last four verses, Lamentations 5, verse 19, Jeremiah ends with with these words. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us forever. You may be seated. May God encourage us through the reading of his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we do ask you this morning for you to be kind, to be, for you to be gracious. We cry out to you. I know that there are various forms of, of, of sources of sorrow this morning. We pray that in our sorrow we would turn to you, we would cry out to you, we would trust in you. We pray that you would help us to walk in, in greater faithfulness as we confess our, our hope in you. We do just continue to pray for our, our ministry to those who are, who are vulnerable, both young and old. We, we think specifically of the young this morning. We pray that we be a community of faith that em, embraces children and it cares for, for children who don't have homes and cares for families who are, are struggling to maintain a home. We pray this in the name of your son Jesus for your glory. Amen. If you are committed to living a life of obedience to God, walking in obedience to Him, you will often find yourself as an exile. You will find yourself out of step with the culture in which you live, and that is often brought to attention on Sundays like Sanctity of Life Sundays. We think about the nature of life and, and our commitment to life, both born and unborn, In 1973, the Supreme Court issued the Roe v. Wade decision. Uh, This was a decision that held that there was a a constitutional right to an abortion. And so that has been uh, the the, the dominant uh, feature of in this this area my entire life. This has been kind of the the rule of the land. I'm 45 years old, and so throughout my entire life, Roe v. Wade was was the the law of the land until this last year. 
which in a very surprising turn of events, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. In fact, if you'd asked me two years ago at our Sanctity of Life Sunday, do you think that, that Roe v. Wade will be overturned in the next few years? I would have said, no, probably not. It was a very surprising event, right? And for those of us who would argue that a society has responsibility to protect life that is vulnerable, we would call this a victory. This was a, a big win for our culture, a culture that we desire to protect human life. But something else, very surprising to me at least, happened over the last few months since Roe v. Wade was overturned. In states where there was an opportunity to protect life by making some changes to the state constitutions, states, even conservative states, voted to, to not do so. They voted to not protect life. In fact, here's what a New York Times editorial on January 7th said about where we are as a culture. And, and obviously, I, I disagree with some of the wording here, but um, it, it's an interesting perspective. It's, here's what the New York Times editorial board said. The fight over abortion is no longer just a front in the culture wars, but rather a fundamental matter of health and well-being for millions of women and the difference between life and death for many. Now, that phrase, a matter of life and death for many, is dripping with tragic irony, right? Because the editorial board here does not mean the life and death of the unborn. It goes on. While views on abortion remain nuanced and complex, a majority of the American public stands firmly on the side of preserving a woman's right to control her own body, which is, again, a very interesting word, way to word it, right? But their argument is that the country is generally on the side of allowing abortion, and they, they point to this evidence, and, and this evidence that they point to is frankly very hard to refute. Listen to what the editorial goes on to say. In, in every state, in every state where people had the opportunity to vote on abortion rights through ballot measures, they chose to protect and preserve access, even in red states such as Kansas and Kentucky. And that's that's undeniable, right? Where both these these red Red states, Kansas and Kentucky, had the opportunity to, to protect the unborn through constitutional amendments. They, they failed to do so, and not by, like, super close margins either. It was very, again, for me, that was very surprising. Now, why did that happen? Uh, the New York Times has a theory. Here's what the, they argue. It says those who, who opposed pro-life measures, they, they aim to persuade rather than polarize keeping the focus on women's health, safety, and fundamental rights rather than on voters' tribal loyalties. Now, I would word that sentence differently. I agree with the first part. They focused on women's rights, but I wouldn't say instead of tribal loyalties, I would say instead of what? The unborn, right? They focused on the rights of the women, which, of course, is we want to protect people's rights, but they failed to, to talk about the unborn at all. In fact, this, this article, no surprise, doesn't even mention the word baby in it, right? Very interesting. I'm excited about the overturning of Roe v. Wade, but as I, I think about what's happened in the months since, I'm forced to conclude this. We are still exiles. We are still out of step with the culture we find ourselves in a, in a world that doesn't want to think about the unborn, which brings us to lament. 
Lament doesn't allow us to ignore death, even the death of the inconvenient. Lament forces us to realize that we are exiles. We, we mourn the things that other people don't mourn. Lament forces us to acknowledge the value of life and its frailty, and lament causes us to confess what our ultimate hope is. And so on this Sanctity of Life Sunday, we're going to lament, and we're going to see some truths about life. Here's kind of the main idea that I want us to, to think about together this morning as we look at chapters 4 and 5. Lament helps us as exiles proclaim that our only hope in this precious yet fragile life is found in Jesus Christ. Lament, as, as we lament, we're, we're proclaiming our, our status as exiles. We're saying this world is not our home. And as we engage in lament, we're saying our, our, my, my only hope in this, in this temporary life in which I'm out of step with this culture, my only hope is that Jesus Christ is my Savior. My only hope in this precious life, yet this fragile life, is found in Jesus Christ. Chapter 4 and chapter 5 here, chapter 4 re returns us to the acrostic pattern that we saw in chapters 1 and 2. Remember chapters 1 and 2, 22 verses each. Each verse begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Chapter 3, the longest chapter of Lamentations, three times as long, uh, 66 verses instead of 22. Chapter 4 returns to 22 verses each verse beginning with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Chapter 5 doesn't follow that acrostic pattern, but it's also 22 verses, which keeps chapter 3 at the center. Chapter 4 talks about the suffering of Jerusalem's children, the wickedness of their leaders, talks about the triumph of their enemies, and then the fifth chapter begins with the status of the people as orphans and exiles and ends with them crying out to God for his restoration. We're going to do this. We're going to look at three things lament helps us confess as we consider Sanctity of Life Sunday and what God might have us do in terms of special application to the orphan and those who are marginalized. So here's the first truth. Number one, that the first thing that happens in lament, truths that we're confessing. Number one, in lament, we confess the value of life. In lament, you and I are confessing that life has value. And look at the text with me, if you would. Verse 1 begins by telling us about the gold. It says, how the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. What, what is Jeremiah talking about there? He's talking about the destruction that's taken place in this city. In fact, if you want to turn back just to Jeremiah, just turn back a couple pages or scroll back just a little bit on your phone or whatever you're looking at, and go to, to Jeremiah 52. And in Jeremiah 52, we, we see the destruction of Jerusalem as the, the Babylonians come in. We see in chapter 52, beginning in verse uh, 12, uh, Nebuzaradan, the, the captain of the bodyguard who serves the king of Babylon, enters Jerusalem. Verse 13, then he burned the house of the Lord, the, the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down, and all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard, broke down all the walls round Jerusalem, and he, he carries away some of the, the people to captivity, and 
Then it says in verse 17, the pillars of bronze that were in the house of the Lord and the, the stands and the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and they carried all the bronze to Babylon. To Babylon. And so what's happening? Jeremiah is able to, to look out at the city and he sees the destruction of the temple. He sees the things have been torn down. He sees the destruction of the walls and the, the gold has been taken out, the precious metals, and it just, everything's just kind of covered in in, in darkness as he looks around the city. It says, the gold has grown dim. The gold is, in some cases, gone. The, the holy stones of the, the temple and of the, the, the city of Jerusalem are, are scattered by their enemies. But he's not just talking about physical gold. He's using that, that gold to describe something even more precious than these physical things, Right? This gold describes the young. Look at verse 2. These holy stones are, are people, the precious sons of Zion, worth their weight in fine gold. Human beings also, the dead, litter the streets. He's seen dead bodies lying in the city of Jerusalem as well. And his, his lament is doing this. His lament is proclaiming that those who are valuable, these, these precious sons of Zion, whose worth is, is more than their weight in, in fine gold, he looks and he, he says, these lives were precious, and now these lives are no more. In lament, what's happening? One of the things that's happening in lament as we cry out to God in our sorrow is we are confessing that life has value. The sadness that we feel when those who we love are gone says that these lives had worth. And human life, the, the, the doctrinal truth behind this is that human life is, is precious to God. It's a gift of God himself who allows us to be, to be as his image bearers, those who proclaim his glory. God is the author of life. As you, as you begin the story of, of Scripture in Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27, we see that God himself is the one who made us, and he separated us from the animals he breathed into us, the, the breath of life. We have a soul, and there is, there, as God's image bearers, we have the ability to, to proclaim truths about God that, that no, nothing else in the universe can proclaim. The people, God says, have been created for his own glory in Isaiah chapter 43, verses 6 and 7. In the, the video that we watched, it, it began and, and ended with, with verses that describe God's gift of life. Psalm 139, Isaiah 43. And so whenever we use the phrase sanctity of life, we talked about this a year or two ago, it doesn't mean that that life in and of itself, like we're somehow just as holy as God or worth as much as God. We're not saying that the life, our lives are the most valuable things in the universe. We're saying that our lives have been given by God and God himself determines what the purpose and meaning of our life is. That life has value because God has given it value and we have the ability to proclaim the glory of God. And so in, in all the universe, we have a very unique purpose. Life is precious. Life has value. This is so crucial to grasp because we live in a culture in which secular materialism, this belief that we are just physical beings, has, has bludgeoned the, the foundations 
of our culture. Let me give you an example. When we Christians lament the death of the unborn, when we say that this is a, a sad thing that, that, that a society should avoid, that the unborn life is, is worth protecting, and, and we lament that our culture doesn't protect that, what, what are we told by many in our culture? We are told that we are letting our, our religious beliefs influence us, and we're, we're forcing our religious beliefs upon others. When we lament the death of the unborn, our culture says you're, you're forcing your religious beliefs on the rest of culture. Secular materialism, the belief that there is no God and we are simply the, the, the products of material processes from the very beginning until now, we are just kind of this, this, this last link in a long evolutionary chain, uh, that, that philosophy, really that religion, dominates our culture. And in that religion, life really has no meaning. In fact, Nancy Piercy in her book Total Truth does an amazing job giving examples of this. In fact, those who are secular materialists might acknowledge that life has meaning, but they say this is a, this is a, a fiction we've created for ourselves. So there's a, a myth that we can create for ourselves, and so we can act like life has meaning, but really we're just this, this, uh, this clump of, of cells that kind of creates this idea, this, this, this uh, myth, this fiction of, of beauty and truth and values, but, but really there's nothing. The, the universe is a cold, dark, really uh, amoral place. And so you can pretend like life has value, but really your life has no more value than, than any other life or object really in the universe. That's what the secular materialist says he or she believes. But, but really they don't, they don't live consistent with that life, do they? Ask Dr. Materialist, who, who proclaims that life has no real meaning if, if he lives that way, he says, well, no, uh, Mrs. Materialist won't let me live that way, right? You can say that you believe that, that morals are just a kind of a, a figment of our imagination or creation of the biological process, but, but the, the people in your life don't want you to live that way. <laughs> Be very upset if you treated them as if morality did not exist because, of course, our creator God has given it to us. Uh, Nancy Piercy quotes Schaefer, an analogy from him. He says, when a person's worldview is too small, there will always be some element in human nature that fails to fit in the paradigm. It's like trying to stuff a, a person into a bucket. There's always an arm or a leg that doesn't quite fit. Adherents of scientific naturalism freely acknowledge that in ordinary life, they they have to switch to a different paradigm. They don't live like they're just material things despite what they say they believe. Here's the point. Brothers and sisters, lament is an act of cultural defiance. Let me say that again. Lament, as Christians, is an act of cultural defiance. What we are saying when we lament the, uh, the death of the unborn or the, the, the plight of children in tough circumstances, what we're saying is, look, you may say that life has no value, 
You may say that the life, that the value of life is, is what we decide as, as a culture, and, but, but what we're saying as Christians, when we lament, is we're saying, look, God himself is the one who determines that life has value. We believe that life is precious, and so when it, there is a loss of life, we lament. We experience sorrow. As Christians, when we lament the, the loss of life or even the harm to, to innocent life, we are saying it doesn't matter if you agree with me or not. Life is precious. When, when, when there's loss of life, something that has value to God is no longer with us, and that makes us sorrowful. Let me invite you to take a moment even now and, and lament to God this morning as we consider the, the loss of life that's incurred in, in many of our lives over this past year, even this, this month. As believers, we, we lament the loss of the unborn, for children who have been lost in the womb, some that, that we even as a church don't know about, some families who've suffered in silence. We lament for, for children who've been lost at young ages, at older ages. We grieve and express our sorrow at the loss of those who are at the end of their lives in terms of, of, of chronologically, the people that the culture might say, well, yeah, they were old, so of course they're gone. We lament that, recognizing that all life is given by God and has value. Lament expresses our grief and helps us proclaim that life is worth more than its weight in gold. In lament, we confess the value of life, but also in lament, number two, we confess the frailty of life. We see the frailty of, of human life in, in lamentations on, in almost every verse. This, this life that God has given us that is precious is also very easily lost. Look, look again at, at verse two. It, says, it describes the precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold, they are, they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hand. And, and so not everyone values this human life. The first thing we see here is acts of intentional violence. It was not an accident that these young of Zion were lost. Instead of, of being seen as human beings, they were viewed as, as earthen pots, these, these things that had little value. This is, this is also something that happens in a culture, right? If I were to give you a, a cup that had been crafted in fine gold. And let's say that, um, let's say it didn't look all that great, you know. But I, I gave it to you, you'd say, well, this, this, has, this has value. Even if I don't like the, the decorations on it, even I don't like the shape of it, even if it has a crack in it or something, it's, it has value. You wouldn't just get rid of it. But if I gave you a, these, these, were, these earthenware pots were incredibly common. We find them in, in archaeological digs all the time. They, they were they were easily made and easily thrown away. And if, I, if someone gave you one of those and it was cracked or damaged, you say, okay, not, not a big deal. Just throw it away. Here, there's, there's acts of intentional violence. The, the young of Zion weren't viewed as those who had inherent value. If you believe life is just an accident, life has value only as a person can provide some sort of utility, then they're not going to be viewed as, as precious the, the, 
fragile nature of life isn't going to be seen as, as something to be protected. We also see the, the fragile nature of life in this passage and the inability to prevent the suffering of others, right? Look what happens next. It says, jackals offer the breasts. They nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel like the ostriches in the wilderness. The, the tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The, the children beg for food, but no one gives to them. And, and there's this idea that, that in this part of the passage that the parents don't have the means to provide for these children. So they don't have the, the resources in themselves to give to those who are most precious to them. And then as the, the passage continues throughout Lamentations 4, we see that the parents are actually actively engaging in harming their children. So there's a lack of security in life. We see even that those who are in positions of power have fallen you see the fragile nature of, of life in verse 5. Those who once feasted on delicacies now are perishing in the streets. So you have these, these people that were clothed in, in uh, purple, and they were, they were wealthy, they were eating whatever they wanted. Now these wealthy people are in the street dying. Life is fragile. Now I hope you see the connection between these first two points, right? Life is precious. And in lament, we're professing life is precious. But also in lament, what are we simultaneously professing? That this, this precious life is also very fragile that can be extinguished in a moment. We acknowledge that this life is a frail, precious thing that can be easily destroyed. And the act of destroying something this precious is an evil act. Couple times in my life, as a, I saw other kids being cruel to animals, it just really stuck with me. A couple times where I just saw my friends or kids doing mean things to animals, and, and there was just this this revulsion, right? And hopefully, all of us feel that, right? This this idea of of cruelty to to something weaker than us being an, an evil act. If we can see that in the animal world, how much more true is it for a human being? We lament the. The, the frailty of human life as exiles. We don't think as our culture thinks. We see human life not as earthen pots, but as vessels of fine gold. Two, two applications here as we think about this. When we put these things together, that life is precious and life is fragile. Uh, two thoughts. One, we recognize and lament, we're saying it's wicked to exploit the frailty of life. To make the argument that because a life depends on us to survive, we have the right to destroy it is an argument that is based on demonic thinking. Might does not make right. It's wrong to believe that we have any sort of autonomy apart from God. We, we depend upon God for every breath, and exploiting the weakness of human life is, is not morally neutral, it's, it's evil. It's not fostering religious beliefs upon a person to argue that life has, has that we have the responsibility to protect life. That's something that, that's ingrained in us morally. And yet we live in a culture in which it's, the belief is that it's okay to profit off the weakness of human life. Maybe you saw this article this, this last week in a couple places, but uh, the pharmacies have, have now been given the right by the FDA. They can apply for special licenses and, and they can begin to prescribe 
uh, abortion drugs. CVS and Walgreens have both said that they're going to apply for these certifications. Now, now why would they do that? Why would they do that? Because there's money to be made, right? But just because we are more powerful than someone doesn't give us the right to harm them. The frailty of life doesn't make it less valuable. So it's, it's wicked to exploit the weakness of human life. The second application, it's godly to protect those who are weak. The godliness of those who protect human life and, and provide for it is seen in, the, in this passage. As, as we lament, we say, okay, life is precious, life is frail, and so it is a godly thing to, to protect human life and to provide for it. That's why on Sanctity of Life Sunday, what do we do? We, we highlight a ministry that is involved in protecting life at its most frail. We protect life through adoption, through our foster care ministry, through safe families. And we, we protect life by coming alongside these, these families and doing what we can to, to help them. At the, at the end of the service, we're going to watch a video of some interviews of, of families who have engaged in caring for those who are in vulnerable situations. And I, and I hope that that stirs within us a desire to do the same. Say, okay, God, I, I, maybe I, I can do this and I can't do this, but, but whatever I can do, allow me to do because I believe that life is frail and life is precious and it is a godly thing to do what I can to protect it. Here's the third truth. We confess and lament. In lament, we confess the hope of life. Lament causes us to realize and confess, first of all, what our hope is not, okay? Two things are happening in lament as we think about the hope of life. First of all, we're saying, okay, God, this is what my hope is not in, right? We start here in the beginning of chapter 4, and you can't get to the beginning of chapter 4 to the end of chapter 5 without encountering a lot of idol destructions, over and over again, we, we see these things that, that we're tempted to value more highly than God through our thoughts or our actions. All these things that we're tempted to value disappear throughout chapter 4. In fact, Mark Vrogoff, in the book I've mentioned several times, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, sees idol destruction as the main theme of chapter 4. He writes this, he says, The chapter mourns the idols upon which we place too much hope. In this way, lament not only expresses sorrow over loss, it also mourns misplaced trust. When your culture or city or life falls apart, it can be very revealing. And I would suggest to you this morning that perhaps some of you are in situations where your life has begun to, began to crumble, to fall apart, where things that you loved very dearly are being taken away from you and what's being revealed. What's being revealed are, are idols, and God in his graciousness is revealing these idols to you so that you can turn from trusting in them and place your hope only in God. Look at chapter 4. Look what happens. Look at the text as we go from chapter 4 to the end of chapter 5. We see loss of relationships. Parents are turning on their children in, in verse 10. It says, The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. Children are, are, are precious, but, but we see here that they're not 
they're, they're, they're abandoned by those who should be caring for the most. And in times of sorrow, oftentimes we see that the source of our sorrow is, is damaged relationships. People that we trusted to love us and care for us and provide for us, sometimes those, those relationships are removed by God. And maybe that's happening in some of your lives where relationships that you had received great comfort and, and, and love from, God has removed some of those relationships or for a time damaged them. And what's happening is your whole world is just kind of being, being uh, shaken. And as it, it's shaken, you're saying, okay, this, this, this place where I thought there was security and a, a foundation of love and, and trust and, and, and mutual care for one another, this is gone. I cannot rely upon this anymore. Where do I turn now? We also see another, another foundation, another potential idol shaken in, in the terms of wealth. Again, verse 5 talks about how the, those who once feasted on delicacies are now perishing in the streets. They were brought up in purple and brace ash heaps. We see throughout this chapter physical security taken away from these people. Maybe that's where some of you are this morning. You've, you've relied upon your, your physical health or your physical possessions, and, and God over the last few months or years or, or days or hours has done some things to, to shake your, your physical security. And as those things are, are being shaken, there's a lot of, a lot of unrest and unease, and, and, and you're saying, okay, God, what are you going to do with this? And as he shakes those things, what he's saying is you, you can't rely on them. Those are not firm foundations. We also see another idol, leaders and teachers, spiritual leaders, spiritual fathers and mothers, people that we, we trusted in to care for us spiritually, they fail us. Verse 13, the sins of her prophets, the iniquities of her priest, they shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. And so there were, there, there were spiritual leaders, maybe some of you were relying upon, and it's okay, um, as long as this person is, is secure, I know that my faith is secure as well. And, and God, in, in, in the recent history, has kind of shaken some of those relationships. It's okay, I, I can't trust in that either. We also see the, the shaking of, of, of political hope. Verse 17, it says the people cry out this, our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. So they were being besieged by the Babylonian Empire and they were hoping for Egypt or another nation to help them. And it says, uh, we looked vainly for help and our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. And maybe some of you in the last few years politically have said, okay, my, my hope is in this political party or this political figure or this political event. And, and if this happens, then, then, I can, then I can be secure and our nation will be secure. And God has, has kind of shaken some of those things. You know, I, I can't rely on that either. May I lovingly suggest that God may be using suffering to help expose some idols in your life. Not, not things that are in themselves bad, but that you have been placing an ungodly amount of confidence in. Maybe God is bringing you to the, the point of the people in Lamentations 5. What is, how, look at how the, the chapter begins. He looks around, remember, O oh Lord, what has fallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance is this thing that we had security in. It's been turned over to strangers. Our homes have been given to, to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. 
Everything we have in which we would find security is gone, and now we are here in a culture as exiles with no place of belonging. And brothers and sisters, God in his grace may be bringing you to that point, maybe he already has brought you to that point, where we look around and we say, we're exiles. This is not our home. And that is not a means of God's judgment on you. It is a means of his grace if you are in Christ. God is taking away things that your hope is not in, in those things. Lament causes us to realize and confess what our hope is not. I mentioned, uh, I mentioned I've been reading Stephen Charnock's The Existence and Attributes of God. I mentioned that here at the beginning today. But um, the, it begins with kind of a description. The, the book that I'm reading begins with a description of, of his life. And it talks about how much Charnock loved books, which I have a friend who really likes books. Um, and uh, this, what, what they wrote of Charnock reminds me of my friend. Um, he says, he chose his friends carefully, determining whether they were suitably worthy enough to take him away from his books, right? Oh, the guy's pretty nice, but I really like this book, which... And then it talks about how he cultivated this, this, this library, and I was reading through this. I've been kind of like cataloging some of my, I mean, my friend has been cataloging some of his books, and, and uh, so I'm reading about Charnock and, his, and his, his library, and then I came to this sentence. Uh, to a person of studious habits, it may easily be conceived what distress it occasioned to have his library swept away from him by fire. He's like, wait, What? fire of 1666 in, in London, it just it, it, uh, destroyed his library. And I felt, I, I, I felt physical pain as I read that. I was like, oh, that's a problem. That's a problem. Those things we can't imagine living without may be the things that God takes away in his grace and his love for us. Is that what God is doing in your life? I'm not saying that Chardock made idols of his books. I, I hope my friend doesn't do that. But it may be possible that the thing that God has taken away from you right now, that you're experiencing sorrow over, is a means of his grace for you to say, okay, this, my hope cannot be in this. Second, not only does it show us what our hope shouldn't be in, but second, it, it, it calls causes us to profess that our hope is in Christ. It's not in something like our books that can be destroyed. It's not something in our, our family that can, can, can disappoint us. Uh, that's, that's not our hope for eternity. Our, our hope is not in our job or our career, which can, can fade away. It's not, in my, it's not even in my ministry. It's not in my title as a pastor or, or whatever ministry position God has, has given you. That's not where my hope is. That's not where your hope is. Lament says this. Lament says, okay, all this has been taken away. My, 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 my title as a pastor or my, my position at work or my, my books or my, my 401K or whatever it is, and, and, and I have all that gone, and now that all that is gone, I'm crying out to you, God, because you are my only hope in this precious but frail life. As we come to the end of chapter 5, look what Jeremiah says. He's in, at the end of all that he said, he only has one option left. Everything else is gone. The, the, 
The financial security is gone. He's in exile. That the people, he has no friends. He's, he's, he's treated terribly, and, and he has, has nothing left. And so what does he do? He says, well, I'm just going to cry out to God. And he ends lamentations by crying out to God. The act of lament is an act of profound trust because we believe that someone can hear us. Maybe you've realized this, you've heard this, but sometimes whenever you go into an orphanage, some of you have experienced this, you go into an orphanage in a, a country where in this, in this orphanage the children have been neglected and you notice something, or you notice the lack of something, you, you notice the lack of the sound of cries in the orphanage. And what does that mean? It doesn't mean that the orphanage is just doing a great job caring for the kids and these kids never complain. What it means is the kids don't cry because they don't believe that anyone will hear them or do anything. You don't cry out to God as a believer if you don't believe he'll hear you or do anything about it. In lament, as we cry out in our pain, we confess, I have hope, God, that you will hear me and you will do something about it. Lament is an act of profound trust in a sovereign God. I'm reading a, a book right now by Chris Watkin called Biblical Critical Theory, and he's trying to do what Augustine did in The City of God. He's trying to show how our culture has, has fallen so short of, of what God says a culture should be, and he's using the, the Bible to critique the culture instead of other man-made uh, systems and stuff. He's trying to take biblical, biblical uh, categories and, and think through them. And the chapter on creation, I just finished reading, so I'm still a little early in the book, and he argues that the rejection of Scripture's teaching on creation has led to all sorts of misery. Our culture rejects, for example, the idea of God's Sabbath rest, and he says, Sabbath is resistance because it's a visible insistence that our lives, insistence that our lives are not defined by the production and consumption of commodity goods. Our, our lives aren't defined by our stuff that we have. Sabbath resists the illusion that, that production and consumption fill the entire horizon of the world and are, as Albert Camus said, enough to fill a man's heart. And then he, he gives this, he talks about how Camus, the, the, the French philosopher, talked about the, the story, the myth of, of Sisyphus. Remember the, the story of Sisyphus? He's punished by Zeus, and his, his punishment is to, to take this huge boulder and, and, and push the boulder and strain to get the boulder up to the top of the hill, and just right as he gets the to the boulder to the top, the, the boulder comes crashing back down to the bottom. He has to go back, and he has to, to strain and to, to push the boulder up the hill, and then it falls down again. And it's, it's this, the story is supposed to be a picture of futility, but Camus argues this. He says, well, maybe it's not futility. Maybe the labor itself is satisfying. The struggle toward the heights is enough to fill a man's heart. He says, Camus says, I imagine Sisyphus happy. And Watkin in the book Biblical Critical Theory says, no, no, no. I don't want, listen to this, I don't want his heart to be filled by that. I don't want to imagine Sisyphus happy. I don't want him to imagine himself happy. To imagine him happy is an act of capitulation to the insatiable gods of imperial productivity. I, I prefer the subversive resistance of inviting Sisyphus to leave his boulder and share God's rest, to, to take a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light. And, and maybe you've been engaged in just these 
Sisyphean, I don't know if that's the right word, Sisyphean acts of, of futility. You're engaged in this labor that is not bringing you any joy, and it's, it's over and over again, this, these, these acts of futility, and you're not finding any satisfaction. And, and beloved, that is God's act of grace to say, okay, this is not going to be a place in which you find joy. Uh, abandon these, these idols that cannot bring you joy and invest your life in, in the beauty of following after God and taking upon him his yoke. Your idols aren't working. There's a hope that can only be met in Christ, and so here's how it ends. Lord, you reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? And the, the idea there is that, that you won't, you'll turn to us. And then he says, my hope is in this restoration. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless... And, and the idea is, is this true? You've utterly rejected us, and you remain exceedingly angry with us. And the idea is forever. And, and the answer, of course, is no. And here's why the answer is no. The gospel. Because God, in his grace, sent his son. Fully God, but also fully human. And because he was fully human, it means that his life was also frail, and that he had the ability to die in our place. And now, because of the miracle of the gospel, we can live the fullness of the gospel. We can turn from idols, we can turn from investing in worthless things, and through faith in Jesus Christ, we can receive eternal life and live a life of obedience to that and can spend our lives doing things like what? Instead of engaging in, in fruitless consumption of material things that will not last, we can use the material things that God has given us to care for those who have a soul that will live forever. And so, brothers and sisters, I would invite you to lament with me this morning, to lament and confess that life has value, that life is fragile, and that our hope is in Christ. We're going to listen to a couple testimonies of, of people who have, I believe, come to some of those conclusions and see how God has been working in their lives and, and doing just some really amazing things. We pray that you would check out the table, that you would consider some ways in which God would be calling you to live in obedience to the gospel as well. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that our lives are fragile, that, that death can occur because, Lord, if we, we cannot imagine living eternity without you, but because our lives are frail, your son could die in our place. And you have not abandoned us forever, but we see as we look to your son that you have extended your mercy to us. And, Father, we receive the gift of eternal life through faith in your son, Jesus. And now, in your grace, allow us to, to live out the gospel as we care for those who are least among us. We pray this for your glory in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.